The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, You, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. Uh, I recognize for some of you that I may be an unfamiliar face uh, standing before you. Uh, I am not Sam. Uh, You just saw him. Uh, My name is Jeff Miller. Uh, I am the church planning resident with Sacred City Church, so uh, I get to kind of split time between the Davenport Church and the Moline Church, and uh, it's my pleasure to get to speak to you this morning and preach God's word to you. Uh, For those of you that are unfamiliar with me, just a little bit about me. Uh, I am married to my wife, Alicia. We just celebrated our 13th wedding anniversary uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, We have three children. We have a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old, and an 11-week-old. Um, yes, they are all mine, and uh, we just chose to wait a little bit before, uh, before having another. So nine-year break uh, in between our youngest and uh, middle child, uh, but that's just what God has for us right now. So that's where we are. We live over uh, in Bettendorf, and Sam was talking about missional communities. Uh, I lead the newest missional community over there, so if you know somebody in, Met- in Bettendorf that needs a missional community, wants to get plugged in, we'd love to have them over there. That's just kind of a uh, pitch for you since I have a microphone and get to do that. So um, I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm glad to preach to you 
this morning. And uh, as Sam said, we're going to finish up the, tenth, the Ten Commandments today. Uh, it's been kind of a long road to get us here. So we've been walking uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Exodus. Uh, and then we came to the 20th chapter of Exodus uh, and found ourselves in the Ten Commandments. So we stopped there and we've been walking through those commandments one by one by one. And uh, now finally, 10 weeks into that, we come to the last one. Um, and what's happened here is just uh, uh, for you a little bit, God has freed the people from, of Israel from their slavery before they did anything, by the way. So they have not performed well. They haven't cleaned up their act. They haven't gotten their stuff together. Uh, they have just been God's people, and he simply freed them because of that. Uh, and today, what God is doing is he's telling the people of Israel here, he, this is how you live in community with one another. God's essentially forming the perfect community here. Uh, think about this. This is a community of people who um, honors their leaders. They don't kill. They don't commit adultery. They don't steal. They don't lie. They don't want everybody else's stuff. And all that's because their love for God is so great that they worship him and him alone. So they don't need to do any of those other things. They're perfectly and totally satisfied by him and in him, so they feel no need to have to steal or kill or commit adultery or lie or uh, covet after everybody else's stuff because they have all that they need. Now, really, if you and I were to be honest, this is the type of community that we all want. Right? This is the type of community that we want to enter into, a place where people are honest with each other, a place where people uh, don't desire after everybody else's stuff, a, a place where uh, leadership is honored and, and, and relationships are, are, are sacred, but we're all desiring after this. We all want this, and, and uh, the question that I was kind of asking is like, what would I do if I found a community like this? What would I do if I found a, a community of people who acted this way, who lived this way? And really my gut response was to run away. Like I'm going to ruin it if I find myself there, so I better get as far away from it as possible. But, but the truth is this morning that, that this is the type of desire we want, and this is what we're really after. And really, uh, as Sam was just talking there just a few minutes ago, the, the great spot that, that we are in here as Sacred City Moline is that as a, we're kind of an upstart community here, and we're kind of forming a foundation upon which this church will be built and, and what our people here will be about, and this is the type of place and this is the time now for, for all of us to kind of solidify that, yes, we will be this type of people to a watching world. We will be this type of people to Moline. We will be this type of people uh, to a watching world, and and as we do that, that's an important thing for us, and, and we want to move forward in that, and we want to do that. So I, I think it's no mistake that we find ourselves in the Ten Commandments as we are a new community for God to say, this is what community should look like. This is a, the foundation a community should be built upon. See, uh, we, we don't see the type of community that's built in the Ten Commandments here outside of these doors. You know, as you, as you go into your job, as you go into uh, maybe even uh, the restaurant you'll go to for lunch today, you don't really see the type of community that's built here in the Ten Commandments in those places, right? We, we see people that are often consumeristic. They're all about getting ahead. Really, kind of the American slogan today is, he who dies with the most toys wins. But God's kind of squelching that here in the Tenth Commandment, or in the Ten Commandments, excuse me. We see God making a distinction for his people. And he says, my people will be a content people. My people will be a people who don't lie and don't steal and, and they honor. And God's saying this will be my people. But, but God's people can only be content, though, if they're satisfied in him. So today we'll begin to look at what it looks like to be content in God, what it looks like to be satisfied in God alone so we don't have to pursue these other things. Let's stop there and let's pray, and then we'll jump into the 10th commandment this morning. 
Father, we, we love you first and foremost. We're thankful for an opportunity today to, to get to slow down a bit, to get to open your word, to hear what you have to say to your people. God, as we look at the Ten Commandments, some of us may be in a spot to say, well, that was all those years ago to a different people. But Father, we see through Scripture that, that is, this wasn't for just the Israelites, but Father, this is for all of your followers. And God, today as we see the Ten Commandments, may we see our need for a Savior. God, may we see our need for someone to obey these commandments perfectly. God, today we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would calm our hearts and our, our, our minds, that you would uh, bring us to a place where we can hear you well and clearly and accurately this morning. Uh, and God, really, we want to know you better. We're here uh, as your people gathered uh, to hear from you, and, and we want to know how a perfect community can be formed even here in our midst. So Father, today would you do that for us, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible this morning, let's grab it and turn over to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there's one down at your feet. There may be one on your phone. Feel free to pull that up. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 17 through 21, okay? But really, right now, we're going to focus on verse 17, and then toward the end, we'll jump back into the rest and kind of get a better picture of what's going on there. But Exodus chapter 20, in verse 17, it says this. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. All right. So right off the bat, we get introduced to some terminology that we don't really use all that much anymore. We get introduced to the word covet. We've talked about it several times already this morning through our liturgy, and, and you've seen it here on the screen. But what does it mean to covet? What does that word even mean? Well, the Hebrew word for covet is amad, okay? And it means desire, amad, desire. So as we see the word covet there, you could replace it with the word desire, all right? So seven things the Israelites are told not to desire. Your neighbor's house, wife, or you could say spouse there, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything, or anything. So seven things we're told, the people of Israel are told not to desire. But as you come to that, we see this word desire, and, and, and maybe you're thinking, is it a bad thing to desire something? Is it really a bad thing to desire uh, things maybe that, that God's created for us? And the, and the answer to that is no. Not all desires are bad. As we come in this this morning and we, we look at desire, God made us to be people that desire right? We desire food when we're hungry, and that's a good thing. It reminds us to eat. Our desire to do something useful motivates us to work, right? Our desire for a better world leads us to serve and volunteer our time. Our desire for friendship draws us into community. Our desire for intimacy uh, may even very well lead us into a relationship, lead us into marriage, right? So desiring is not necessarily a bad thing. Even Jesus Desired. We see several times in Scripture that Jesus hungered, Jesus thirsted. In the garden the night before Jesus would be crucified, he said, is there some other way? He's desiring that if there was another way, that that, that would take place. You see, many desires are healthy. Many desires are good. But the problem with desire becomes, just like everything else, that, that we have been corrupted by sin. You see, we often find ourselves wanting the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. And that's what the 10th commandment is ruling out. 
the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong way for the wrong reason. That's what the 10th commandment is telling us uh, about. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says this, the 10th commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and in all inordinate emotions and affections to anything that is his. So what is being condemned is to covet or desire something so much that you would lose your contentment in God. Because what happens when we lose our contentment in God is that we, we start to seek it elsewhere. See, when we lose our contentment in God, we start to seek it elsewhere. And oftentimes we'll, per, we'll pursue sin in order to get the thing that we believe will satisfy us or content us. Simply put, covetousness kills our contentment. And specifically, it kills our contentment with God. Interestingly enough, as, as I was going through kind of studying the 10th commandment this morning, we find that the 10 commandments begin and end with almost the, the same commandment. Look back to Exodus uh, chapter 20 and verse 3. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, and then we jump to verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And, and we find the list of things there. They are almost equivalent commands. You see, covetousness is a heart divided between two gods. Paul tells us later on in, in, in the book of Colossians that it's actually, covetousness is actually idolatry. right? And we've already talked about that in the second commandment. It's a heart divided between two gods. And covetousness is actually a, a really unique thing for us this morning because unlike the last four commandments that we've walked through, right, we've talked about do not murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. The, the sin of covetousness is actually a secret sin, right? Like for the other sins, think about don't steal, don't lie, don't murder, all those things. There's a, there's a, um, a consequence for doing those things, Right? Even at the time the law was given, the consequence oftentimes would have been a capital punishment, meaning you could be put to death for doing those things. But that's not the case when we come to covetousness. Right? Like you can't really look at somebody and say, you're being covetous. You're going to be put to death. Like, no, it doesn't really play itself out like that. Actually, covetousness is the sin kind of underneath every other sin. It's hidden underneath there. You see, covetousness is oftentimes the reason why people will murder, why people will commit adultery, why people will steal, why they'll lie. They want something so badly that they'll do these other things in order to get it, but it oftentimes starts with covetousness. It can be traced back to that point. And again, covetousness kills contentment. You see, covetousness causes us to believe that we need or deserve something better than what we currently have so much so that we will pursue sin in order to get it. Think of it this way this morning. All of, how many of you have a car, have a vehicle of some kind? Okay, most all of us. And all the teenagers looked around and you're like, one day. Okay, all right. So we've, we've all probably played video games if you don't have your own car, right? So in your car, as you're driving here, there are lights on the instrument panel, right? There's, there's a, a light that tells you how fast you're going, tells you your RPM rate. It tells you uh, if you, like, there's just different things that come up, right? There's a tire pressure light. There's a check engine soon light. There's a little uh, oil can light that will come on if something's going wrong there, right? There are all these instruments on that panel that kind of tell us what's going on. And when one of those lights comes on, it's a warning for us to pay attention, right? It's a warning for us that the car is in need of some type of service, right? The oil light comes on. It's time to either change the oil or, or, um, or, get, or yeah, sorry, change the oil or put more oil in. If it's overheating, right, you need, to, you need to put more fluid in or figure out if you've got a leak somewhere. All those lights are designed for our vehicle to function at its highest uh, ability, 
So when I was young, uh, I played Little League Baseball, and my next-door neighbor happened to be my coach. It was Mr. Fenimore. And uh, his son was on the team, too, and he would often take us to practice. And Mr. Fenimore drove an old uh, Ford Ranger pickup truck, just a single cab, bench seat, right, just a little old pickup. And every time I would get in the car, I would notice that the, the check engine light was on in Mr. Fenimore's truck. It was always on. I just noticed it, and I would come back. I never said anything to him, but I would tell my parents, like, Mr. Fenimore's truck's in bad shape. Like, and it, it wasn't really, but like as a kid, I was like, we're going to die at any minute. Like, this thing's, like, wheels are going to fall off. The whole thing's going to break down. And I remember one day, though, I got in the car, and the light was off. And I was like, like, what just happened here? And I said, Mr. Fenimore, your check engine light's off. And he was like, yeah, I fixed it. And I was like, awesome. Like, great. Well, my neighbor, uh, his son was sitting in the car next to me, and he leaned over. He said, he just put tape over the light. I was like, what? He, he had taken a black piece of electrical tape and just put it over the check engine light, and it was gone. It was fixed. There was no longer any light on in the car anymore. And I, like, as a kid, I was like, I didn't know if that was the greatest thing ever or, like, the stupidest thing ever, right? Like, once I eventually owned a car, I was like, that's terrible. Like, don't do that. Actually, now that I own a car, I'm like, maybe it is genius. But anyway, as we come to covetousness this morning, this is kind of an indicator light for our life. When we feel covetousness rising up, it's kind of that indicator light on the dashboard of our life saying, hey, something's in need of repair here. The car needs service. The vehicle of your life needs service. And this is really the way we were designed. This is a light going off for us. It's God kind of speaking into us saying, hey, pay attention here. Lean in here. Something's wrong and it needs fixing. Just like when something goes off in your car. If that light goes off, you need to get it taken care of. So when our covetous light is going off, what do we do? Where do we go? Because when the light in our car goes off, right, we can pull into the repair shop and we can allow somebody to diagnose it, right? We can allow somebody to do the things necessary. But what do we do when it's our life, right? Like we can't really go to like the, the car repair shop and pull in there and be like, I feel a light going off. Can, is there like a rod or something? Can you like figure out what's going on here? And it doesn't really work that way. But scripture actually does help us diagnose. Scripture helps us get to the bottom. And really, it starts with a word I've mentioned a couple times this morning, and it's a word called contentment, okay? Contentment, all right? The opposite of a covetous heart is a contented heart. Specifically for the believer here this morning, our contentment is to be found in God alone. You see, when our contentment in God decreases, our covetousness will increase, you see, what happens is we begin to look around at what everybody else has and the people around us, and we, we begin eyeing all their stuff, and we begin seeking after everything else that's theirs. And Scripture tells us here, it ranges from houses to donkeys. I was going to use the King James Version there, but that just, we'll just leave it at that, right? Anything from houses to donkeys, right? When our covetousness is going up and our, our contentment in God is decreasing, we just begin to look around right? You begin to watch HGTV, right? And you're just like, I want it all. <laughs> I don't care if I don't have that much square footage. I want an island in the kitchen, right? We can make this work, right? You just begin scheming and making it right, right? Like when you pull up next to the, the, the 2008, like Ford 4x4, like next to you, or 2018 rather, truck next to you, you're like, I want that so bad, Tim specifically, right? Like I need that, okay? We want that thing, Right? When, when our contentment begins to decrease, our covetousness increases. Everything from houses to donkeys. So again, what do we do? Thankfully, this morning, God's provided us with an answer. And it may have been something you were told not to do as a child. 
Okay, the answer found in Scripture is actually something you were probably told not to do as a child, and that is fight. Fight. Right? If we were in the 30s, I would say put up your dukes. Right? Like, it's time to get after it. Roll up your sleeves. Tighten up your shoelaces. If you're from, from where Ash is from, right, you take off your chains. You give them to somebody else. Like, you got to go fight. Right? It's time to get after it. So if you will this morning, let's take a look at that. Uh, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. So we're going to go all the way almost to the back of your Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to look at this morning with how we fight this covetousness. How we rise up against it. What is it that we need to do? We're going to learn how to fight. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 6 through 12. I'll read it to us, and then we'll begin to break it down. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 6 through 12. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, excuse me, with these we will be content. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness. And verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. All right? So what we find Paul doing in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 12 here is he's trying to persuade people not to be covetous. Okay, and, and in verses 6 through 10, which we're going to actually come back to and, and tie in on the back end, Paul is giving reasons to not be this type of people. Right? He says, these are the things will hap- that will happen to you if you are covetousness, if you cov- covet the things of other people. And then in verse 11, he tells Timothy to flee these things and instead put on. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love steadfastness, gentleness. Paul says that faith is how you go about that. But he lets us know in verse 12 that it will, in fact, be a fight. It won't be easy. Right? If it was easy, everyone would do it. But Paul says here, fight the good fight of faith. That's what the fight against covetousness is. It's a fight of faith. As we look at the Ten Commandments today, fighting the fight of faith is actually the clearest way to obey the Ten Commandments. Do it by faith. But what it also shows us is that if covetousness needs to be fought with faith, then it must be a sense or a state, rather, of unbelief. Right? If I have to fight it with faith, that means that when I find myself being covetousness, that I have some type of unbelief going on in my life, that I'm not believing something about the gospel. That's what the definition of covetousness implies. We said that covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. John Piper said it this way. He said, it's losing your contentment in God so that you start to seek contentment elsewhere. Jesus in John 6, 35, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. 
In other words, what it means to believe in Jesus is to experience him as the satisfaction of your soul's thirst and our heart's hunger. You see, faith is the experience of contentment in Jesus. The fight of faith is to keep your heart contented in Christ, really to believe and then keep on believing that he will satisfy every need, that he will meet every longing. And God hasn't left us wondering. God hasn't left us alone. Uh, Like deism says, basically, that God spun the world into existence and then kind of distanced himself from it and said, good luck. But that's not what God did. We have God's word. We can fight with the word of faith. He's given it to us, and he says, well, every time this book is open, you should be listening. You should be paying attention because there's a fight for your faith. There's a battle going on. You see, when covetousness begins to raise its greedy head in our life, we, there's often times when we need to preach the word of God to ourselves. I don't know what that looks like for you. That might be like crazy person standing in the mirror looking and like reading scripture to yourself. That might simply mean you kind of close in and you just begin praying scripture over yourself. But whatever it is, we go to God's word and we fight it with that. See, oftentimes I think our tendency is to go to maybe an Instagram quote or some positive thinking book or something like that and try to pump ourselves back up. But Scripture says, no, 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 go back to the truth of God. Go back to who God says you are. We need to hear what God says about us. We need to hear his warnings about being covetousness, or excuse me, being covetous and how serious an offense it is. But we also need to hear God's promises that he can give great contentment to our soul and that he can, he can squash all our covetous cravings. This morning, I want to look at some of the warnings of covetousness first, because we have to see that this actually is a big deal. Because even as I looked at it, like, is it a big deal to want my neighbor's truck? Is it a big deal to want that island in the kitchen? Is it a big deal to just want these things? And I, I don't know that I believed it when I first started reading it. And maybe some of you are in that place this morning. So I want to look at some of the warnings about it, and then, let's, then, we'll, then we'll get to what God says about the good news of it. Okay? Ecclesiastes 5.11 says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with gain. This is also vanity. One of the warnings from Scripture about covetousness is that it never brings satisfaction. It never satisfies us. This is what God says about our stuff and our money. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with it, nor he who loves wealth with gain. It's vanity. You see, it doesn't satisfy those who love it. God's saying it's a dead-end street. But that's not often how we picture our stuff, right? Like when I'm buying something that I want, I don't picture it as a dead-end street. I picture it as the thing that's going to bring me happiness. It's going to bring me joy. I think this thing is going to take me where I want to be. It's going to get me over that hump in life, and I'm going to arrive when I have this thing. But Jesus put it like this in Luke 12, 15. He said, Beware of all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Hmm. It kind of steps right back on that, right? When I'm trying to build myself up in these things and this stuff that I'm, that I'm pursuing and, and uh, accumulating, Jesus steps in and says, but beware of all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. To confirm this, uh, that he's saying, well, let, me, let me try to confirm it a little bit with you. Think about the people in your life that you would consider to be rich. 
Think about the people that you would consider to be rich in your life. Now, are those people happy? Are those people satisfied? Are those people content people? For some of us, we might say, yeah, yeah, they are. When I look at them, they're happy people. And I just want to ask in the midst of that, then why do those people continue to work so hard? If being rich makes them happy or satisfied or content, why do they keep working so hard? Why do they keep putting in the long hours? Why can't they rest? Why, when they got the thing that they wanted that, that, that satisfied them, didn't they stop working so hard? Like, why do they continue to sacrifice their families on the altar of more? Why do they keep going after that? Some of you may, may even have that going on in your life right now. My parents are at the age where they're getting closer and closer to retirement, and I just keep hearing them kind of pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off. Why? If, if having all this stuff makes you happy or satisfied and content, then why can't they just be happy to retire? Why can't they just be happy saying, enough? You see, the truth is, rich people are oftentimes some of the most miserable people because the truth of the gospel is playing out in the fact that the contented life does not come from having more things. The contented life does not come from having more things. To, to push this even further this morning, I don't know if maybe recently you've looked at the statistics on death. Do you know that one out of every one person will die? Just hear that for a minute. That means that you and I have a 100% chance of dying. There will come a day for 100% of every single people that we will die. And then what happens then? What happens then? Look to 1 Timothy 6 verse 7 real quickly. It says, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. You see, at the end of your life, at the end of my life, I will be left empty-handed. You will be left empty-handed. We will enter into eternity with nothing. No iPhone, no knockoff phone, no new truck, like nothing. Nothing. Not the fancy new clothes, none of it. You know, around the office, a lot of times, we love country music. I don't know if you know this about, about your pastor, Sam, but he loves country music, okay? If you were to pick him up and go somewhere, tune it over to the country station, right? He, he loves it, okay? That, that's actually not true. But in our office, I like it a whole lot. Ben uh, likes it a whole lot, our, our, our um, uh, Justin's pastoral assistant. So I'll often turn on Pandora, and, and country's just playing, and I'll often hear Sam kind of come by and just hear, like literally hear him. Shake his head, right? Like, why are we listening to this? Like, it's on. But I was listening the other day, and uh, there's, a, there's a country song out called Trailer Hitch. It's by a new uh, artist named Christian Bush, right? Listen to the lyrics. Listen to the chorus of this song. I, I had it in my head, actually. I was going to try to kind of sing it a little bit. Then when we went into worship, I totally lost, really, like, the, the flow of it. So I'm just going to read it, and you'll probably all thank me for that. It says this. I don't know why, know why everybody want to die rich. Champagne, new plane, work your way down that list. We try, everybody tries, tries to fit it into that ditch. You can't take it with you when you go. Never seen a hearse with a trailer hitch. Never seen a hearse with a trailer hitch. 
Hey, hey. <laughs> There's more. It says, <laughs> it says you stack it up, pack it up, tie it with a big red bow, get a great big truck, back it all up, but you can't take it with you when you go. You can't take it with you when you go. You see, even country music knows that covetousness never brings satisfaction. And Sam says nothing good can come from country music. Right there in the middle of it, gospel, right? Covetousness. <laughs> covetousness never brings satisfaction. We even, listen, listen to, to how great a truth that is, that, that even our culture kind of knows this. So much so that they would write a song about it. It's like a reminder even in the music we listen to. We find God's common grace speaking in there and saying, this is truth. You cannot take this with you when you go. Covetousness never brings satisfaction. Next, this morning, covetousness kills our spiritual life. Jesus in Mark chapter 4 is telling kind of a parable about about different types of soil. And he says that in one of the cases, some seed falls among the thorns, and the thorns grew up around the seed, and they choked it out. Jesus said that the seed is the word of God, and the seed uh, sown among thorns gets choked out. The cares of the world, the pursuit of more, enters into our life, and it chokes out the word, so the plant becomes unfruitful, and we are that plant. When the cares of the world, the desires of the world grow up among us and grow up around us, it's, it's literally as if thorns and thistles are growing up around our life and it has a very real potential to choke out the gospel in our life. It has the real potential for us to lose track of what really matters. Even as you sit here this morning, there is is a literal battle going on inside of every single one of us really asking the question, is this true or not? Is this true or not? You may not necessarily pay attention to it yet, but every time God's word is open before us, there is a battle that's being waged. Will you believe God or will you believe the enemy? You see, the desire for other things in our life can be so strong that our spiritual life can be choked out altogether and we forget who the real provider of everything in our life really is. You see, there's a warning for us here that we should be on guard every time God's word is open to receive it with faith and or excuse me with faith and not let covetousness choke it out. Next, covetousness is a gateway drug, right? You were told it was something else growing up, but now it, we find in scripture that covetousness is a gateway drug. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. It says for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. In James 4, 2, it says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you wage war. You see, covetousness gives birth to every other sin. All the more reason for us to flee from it. It's a gateway drug. It just opens us up, and it becomes a root of other things taking place. It gives birth to every other sin. Next, covetousness destroys the soul. Look back at 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 9 is saying that your desires can mess up your marriage, can mess up your kids, your business, and most importantly, you hear even your eternity. 
verse 10 goes on at the end of it. It says, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pangs. Pangs here means suffering and anguish brought on by our covetousness. Listen, God goes out of his way throughout Scripture to show us that covetousness is a trap. It's a trap. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 11. You can almost hear Paul screaming to the believer here this morning. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 11. But as for you, O man or woman of God, flee these things. Listen to all the things that covetousness can do and is doing. It, it, it leads us to believe that something else other than God can lead us to satisfaction. It kills our spiritual life. It chokes out the word in our life. It's a gateway drug. It gives birth to every other sin. And then we even saw that it, it has the power to destroy our soul. And in the midst of that, we hear Paul saying, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Get away from them. Paul goes on in verse 12 and he adds uh, that he says that covetousness will be resisted with the fight of faith. Paul's telling us there is a way out and it's fighting. It's through fighting. He says, take hold of the eternal life which you were called and about which you made the good confession. Listen, Picture yourself like you're running this morning, you're running through some woods and you're coming up and maybe something's chasing after you and as you're, as you're running, you're running, you come to the edge and you're about to fall off and in the midst of that, you remember running past maybe this vine or this branch or this rope that was hanging down and in the midst of that, you reach back and you grab hold of it and you hang on for dear life. Listen, that's the picture that Paul is painting here in verse 12 when he says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul is saying, reach back. Grab a hold of it. Remember. That's big for us. Remember. You see, when the indicator life is going off, when we feel our covetousness gauge creeping up, flee Think of this, if anything in your life was coming at you with the force that covetousness is and has the power to do what covetousness can do in your life, you would run from it so fast it would make Usain Bolt look like a mall walker, right? Like you would, you would run so fast that there's no chance that that guy would keep up with you. And you should be asking, the question this morning is, well, where do I run? Where do I go? How do I do that? Well, let's actually go back to, to Exodus and see what the Israelites did. Because they always give us a great example to follow, right? Let's see what the Israelites did this morning. Where do I run? So the Israelites have received the Ten Commandments. Now they've heard them all. And now listen to verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled, trembled, excuse me, and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. Listen to this. This is huge. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Stop for a minute. They've just heard God say, this is how the perfect community is formed. This is how God's people are to live. Come near to me, be my people, and what do they do? They run from everything else, right, and they get really close to God, right? No, 
Actually, they do the opposite. And they say, actually, Moses, you speak to us. We're afraid. We don't want to hear from that voice. That voice can kill us. Listen, the, the, the gauge, the instrument gauge of their life is going off saying, you need more God. You need a Savior. You need one who can watch over you. You need one who's going to walk through this with you. You need the one who's giving you these rules. And their gut response is to say, I don't want to hear from him. I'm going to run away. Where does that, where does that come from? Listen to Moses' response to the people. Do not fear. Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near uh, to the thick darkness where God was. Moses looks the people in the, faith, or excuse me, in the face and he says basically what Paul was saying to Timothy back in 1 Timothy 6, right? He's saying, no, 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 we're gonna fight the good fight of faith. And then he doesn't just tell the people fight the good fight of faith. He actually turns and walks back towards God. He says, I'm afraid too, I'm scared too. You haven't seen what I've seen. I've been face to face with God, but he's for us. He's not against us. Let's go back. Let's go back to God. You see, for you and I this morning, where do we run? We run back to the cross. We run back to where we first tasted forgiveness in Jesus. We run back to where we were confronted and contented for the first time in our life. We were confronted with the weight of our sin and we came face to face with a holy Jesus and we became contented for the first time in our life. Listen, Jesus in the face of temptation was, to content, was content to go to the cross on your behalf. Jesus in the face of temptation was content to go to the cross on my behalf. Jesus, when praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, just moments after he said that, he prays again, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In the face of the greatest temptation Jesus would ever face, he was content to do the father's will. He wanted nothing else to bring, than to bring glory to the Father. Hebrews 12, 2 says, uh, speaking of Jesus, says, looking to Jesus, the founder, some versions say the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He had actually already prayed before, if this can pass from me, let it. But if not, your will be done. This morning, the cure to our covetous hearts is found in being content with the one who gave everything he had in order to give us everything we would ever need. Hear me well on that. This morning, the cure to our covetous hearts is found in being content with the one who gave us everything he had who gave everything he had in order to give us everything we would need. Believers here this morning, in the face of our covetousness, Jesus despised the shame of the cross and endured it on our behalf. Psalm 107 verse 9 says, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Run to him this morning. May you look long in the face of our Savior this morning and be content with his salvation. I had a friend 
who became a, a master chef. And as he was going through culinary school, uh, one of the things he had to learn how to do was to make uh, ice sculptures. Right? And he said it was one of the hardest things he ever had to do. Because if you're drawing something, like you can, you can look at a picture and you can, you can kind of draw it on there and, you can, and then you can kind of cut it out. Yesterday, uh, my son's making a shield for, for his fourth grade class and it's like a life-size shield, so like covers literally his whole body. And we looked at a picture and we traced it out on this thing and then we cut the edges off the wood and, and we made this shield for him. And my friend was saying like on ice, you can't do that. Like if you ever tried to draw on ice, it doesn't work. So what you have to do is you take the picture of the thing you're going to create on the ice and you place it right next to it. And you just begin to chisel away piece by piece by piece. So you have this picture of a swan and eventually you're going to get to a picture of a swan in this ice. And my friend, it was several years later, my friend became a believer and he said, you know what, that's what the Christian life is like. We're constantly looking back to the face of Jesus and then looking back in the mirror of our life and saying, does this look like me? Does this represent me? And then looking back to the face of Christ and coming back to your own life and looking to Jesus and coming back. And in the, in the midst of this this morning, may you and I look long in the face of our Savior this morning and be content with his salvation. Let me share one more text of scripture with you this morning and we're, we're done. Romans chapter 5, if you turn there with me. Romans chapter 5. And I, I go here because of this. I want you to see how beautiful Jesus is in the midst of our coveting this morning. Romans 5, verses 8 through 11, we're going to look at this morning, and we're done. Romans 5, 8. It says this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to that. While we were stuck in our covetousness, Christ died for us. When we were wanting what everyone else has, when we were constantly looking over the fence to see what the neighbors had, to see if their grass really was greener, Christ died for us. Verse 9. Christ, through whom we now perceive reconciliation. Hear this. Reconciliation means the relationship has been restored. Okay? The relationship has been restored. When a relationship is restored, there's rest there. There's contentment there. And in Christ, it says, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In that we can rest. Contentment is found there. No more performing, no more striving, no more seeking after what everyone else has because we have all we need. This is what allows us as believers to pillow our heads at night and rest because we know that there is one who has died to give us everything we will ever need. Listen to those of you who are, that are here this morning, maybe you're yet to place your faith in Christ this morning, I beg that you would hear this well. That there is a far better life promised to you in Christ than anything this world could ever offer. Psalm 22, 26 says this, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. That only comes through the Lord. Listen, as we come to the table this morning, Jesus quiets our covetous hearts and reminds us that his body has been broken to give us all we'll ever need. And his blood was shed to seal our eternity with Him. Let me pray over us this morning.
Father, as we find ourselves here, maybe some of us have been confronted with the ways in which we've been wanting what everyone else has. And we've lost sight of the fact that you have provided us with everything we will ever need. Every spiritual blessing is found in you. Every earthly blessing is found in you. And this morning, God, may we rest in that. May we stop being like little children who are constantly running in the backyard to peer over the fence to see what the neighbors have. But may we rest. May we be content. May we know that our stuff is nothing more than stuff. That though our neighbor may have a better kitchen, or a better truck, or a better whatever, we have all we ever need in you. God, today I pray that you would bring us rest. That as we look long into your face this morning, that we would be content with your salvation. God, today if there's any of us here that that are yet to call you Savior, I pray that you would convict our hearts, Father. I pray that you would help us to see the gravity and the weight that our sin has in the face of a holy God. And as we see Jesus this morning willing to give everything he had in order to give us everything we would ever need, may we submit to that rule and that authority in our life. And may we, for the first time, rest. God, today you know our hearts, you know what we need, and as we take your supper, God, May you quiet our covetous hearts. Remind us of the joy of your salvation. We pray these things in your son's name.